Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, I want to talk about prices. Inflation seems to be one of the major stories in America for 2022. And there are just sort of three interesting stories that have to do with prices. And I just want to get your opinion of which story do you think is the most important? And I want to start out and talk about how maybe the millennial subsidy is over for some of the products that they use. I want to talk about Arizona iced tea. And then finally, Venice is going to start charging people to come and visit. And I just want to get your opinion on these. But first, I want to start with the millennial subsidy. And basically, in the Atlantic, somebody was writing about how Uber and DoorDash and some of these other products that people have been using with their phones, a lot of them are geared towards millennials, are finally starting to see rises in their prices as a lot of the Silicon Valley companies and venture capital funds that funded them have slowly been withdrawing capital. They don't have as much there and therefore prices have increased. And this seems to be a shock to some. And so here's the best paragraph I read. For the past decade, people like me, youngish, urbanish, professionalish, got a sweetheart deal from Uber, the Uber for X clones, and that whole mosaic of urban amenities and travel, delivery, food, and retail that vaguely pretended to be tech companies. Almost each time you or I ordered a pizza or hailed a taxi, the company behind that app lost money. In effect, these startups, backed by venture capital, were paying us, the consumers, to buy their products. It was as if Silicon Valley had made a secret pact to subsidize the lifestyles of urban millennials. As I pointed out three years ago, if you woke up on a Casper mattress, worked out with a Peloton, Ubered to a WeWork, ordered on DoorDash for lunch, took a lift home, and ordered dinner through Postmates, only to realize your partner had already started on a Blue Apron meal, your household had in one day interacted with eight unprofitable companies that collectively lost over $15 billion in one year. And Don, the article just kind of goes on to talk about the economics of these companies, many of them we have used. What did you think about the article? Well, on the day you just described, the eight companies you interacted with probably had a net loss of like $200 on you that day. Yeah, when these companies came out, they're almost too good to be true because they were too good to be true. Remember the first time using Uber, like, well, the traffic, the taxi ride from LaGuardia to downtown New York City was like $70 and the Uber was less than 20 bucks. It's like, this is too good to be true. Well, it is like they were funded by venture capital, by the big money that people put up to sponsor these companies and get them going was subsidizing the rates. And therefore it was too good to be true. And I was happy to spend venture capital money on Uber then. I was happy to spend venture capital on DoorDash when they gave me my first three deliveries free or whatever. These things were all good and great and wise to take advantage of it, hoping that become they become habits. I'm not sure if the jury's in on that one because now they're trying to charge the appropriate price and still be profitable. I don't know if it's happening. I feel like this is in economics what is called the long run right? Usually we always just deal in the world of the short run and then here's how this looks. And then we always tell students, hey, but in the long run, this is what will happen. Prices will drop or prices will increase. People will adjust. They'll, they'll start to change. And ultimately what we've seen here is interest rates have gone up. Venture capitals all of a sudden wants a return on the investments that they've been making. And the long run is here. And I guess as you're saying, 
are these products sticky enough? And I have maybe used some of these things just a little bit here or there. In my life, they're probably not sticky enough. But I would say that like Uber has sort of become a verb and that a lot of people just say, I'll take an Uber when I get somewhere. That seems good. But at the same time, can people afford to do these things if all of a sudden the prices are increasing by, by quite a bit? And there's a lot of competitors. It's not an empty field. Um, and uh, I think Airbnb makes the most sense because you're not taking things from one place to another and it's you're not making something. That seems to be a more profitable way to do it is just renting somebody else's capital um, and providing them a way to market. And that seems to be the most sustainable one. But in general, yeah, these are companies that made life a little bit easier and a little bit more simple and were really unprofitable. And I don't know if they make a profit now or if they can find enough workers to fulfill their needs. Well, that's the other issue they brought up was that a lot of people have left these jobs because, again, these were sort of the gig economy jobs, right? For a while, they sort of made sense as somebody who wanted kind of a side hustle, all of a sudden turn your car into a business or, uh, you know, kind of stuff like that. But a lot of those people, given that the wages have increased so much, have left these gig jobs. And now you're seeing that the wages have to increase for them. And so you're right. Does the economics work? It seems like there's like a billion different delivery services, DoorDash and Postmates and Grubhub and Uber Eats. And it just seems like that all needs to get consolidated into maybe one business. Yeah, there was a huge article I read about Uber and I used in my investments class. And basically their statement when they made an IPO was something like, we don't see a path for profitability unless we can get rid of our competitors. And even then it's fleeting. And I was like, why are people buying this company? It seems so pessimistic. It doesn't seem like there's any hope of profitability ever. Well, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm not, but it's the same thing with all these other ones. I had a student that was delivering for DoorDash that he's making like a thousand bucks a week early in the pandemic. Well, people are getting huge tips. They're also getting a lot of wage. And yet, those pages aren't sustainable. There's no way they can do that. And I don't think people want to live in their cars. I don't think they really want to do that job all day. Right. It seemed like you read, you know, kind of certain articles about these companies that kind of brought up just sort of the sinister algorithms that had been developed where the people in Silicon Valley sort of would make it so that Uber would offer just enough of incentive to keep you driving just a little bit longer. And they would pay you just enough to sort of cover the cost of your car and give you just a little bit to kind of keep you going. But it was never like something that you could just sort of get rich on, it seemed like. It seemed like it was a hamster on a wheel. Now, again, you can be your own boss. You can work when you want to work. And I'm sure some people have found a way to make it work. I was reading an article about a guy who was driving for Uber, and I think he actually used to be the Secretary of Defense in Afghanistan, and now he's living here, and basically the best job he can get is Uber, but I remember how he was driving around people at like 3 a.m., and how on his Uber screen, they would then offer like a bonus if you drove for another half hour or go get three more pickups in the next hour and there'll be a $15 bonus. And so it seemed like those places were trying to work people pretty hard but at the same time, like given gas prices and stuff like that now, is it is it enough? Well, they're using the same algorithms that social media uses. They know what happened right before you stop playing this game or the social media device or whatever. And Uber knows what happens right before you quit. So they're making the preemptive offer. You usually cut it, quit at three. Here's an extra 15 bucks. How about working at four? I mean, this would be a bad gig for me. I'd be easily managed. I'd be like, oh, sure. 15 bucks. Why not? And so it, it just doesn't seem like 
it's a sustainable model for running the long run. But that's well, the only hope they have is the long run. You're right. And what's interesting is they just kind of said everybody is always searching for the next Amazon, right? Some company that just has tremendous revenue growth year after year after year and eventually can turn the profit. Now, Amazon has, you know, for years been consistently developing and showing revenue growth, but they've also branched out into cloud services and doing a ton of other businesses like Prime that brings them a ton of money that they can just sit on for a year. These all seem like kind of one trick ponies and they seem really difficult, especially when you've got a lot of variables you've got to try to control. They were just saying like, look, it really costs you $25 to have a pizza delivered to your door in New York City, but you've been getting 10. Obviously you're getting a deal. And Lots of people are going to order that pizza and month after month, year after year, you're probably going to see the revenue increases as more people order that $10 pizza. But now all of a sudden it's 25 and the revenue growth seems like it's going to maybe drop here. Yeah, well, in Amazon, it should be noted is although they deliver things to people's houses and that's what they know them, people know them most for, they barely make a profit doing so. They make nearly all their profits and, near, and most of their revenue from their Amazon Web Services, which rubs the internet. They're the ones that send Netflix to your house. They're the ones doing the streaming of that and so many other things. So the point is that, and, and the Zoom link we're using now, Amazon is delivering stuff, but not in a profitable way. It's really hard to make a profit delivering stuff to people, especially this local just-in-time delivery while the burrito's still warm. But yeah, I don't know what people choose. I mean, we were with friends in Virginia, and they left their 18-year-old at home for a weekend, and they left him, I think, 60 bucks for to buy food, and he bought three DoorDash burritos from Chipotle. And that was for, it. That was it. That's all he could afford. And his mom was like, what? This makes no sense. But to him, it did. And so maybe it does. It does to some people. I think that was one of the experiments I asked you is, could you just live on one large burrito a day? Maybe that's what he was trying to do. Uh, it would not be a happy life for me, but I'm sure some people can. I don't know. These were all unicorn companies. Wall Street fawned all over them. I mean, during the pandemic, you could argue they were really providing a service to a lot of people that were very scared to leave their homes. So I don't want to totally trash them. I remember one time I was going to get takeout during the pandemic and I ran into a DoorDash worker and I said, Hey, like, do you like the job? Are you treated well? And they seemed very mixed. They were just very honest. They said, I do like that. I can just kind of pick to when I want to work at the same time. What I've noticed is that if I don't want to do a certain job or go to a certain neighborhood or area, then all of a sudden my ranking goes down immediately. And now all of a sudden I'm not getting as many job opportunities. And so they really seem to kind of weigh it, you know, back and forth. And I think, Hey, I guess in some ways, nobody's forcing you to be a gig worker. And one of the things they kind of said is maybe if the recession, some people are predicting one is coming, maybe all of a sudden these companies will see an influx in workers as people are trying to find a way to make some money while they figure out their next career move. And maybe all of a sudden the prices go down. Maybe it's one of these things where when there's a recession, these companies get cheaper. Yeah, but a recession has always meant unemployment and falling GDP. But we only have one of those. We have GDP that may be on the cusp of falling. We don't have unemployment. We have the opposite of unemployment. We have twice as many open jobs and we have unemployed people. So where's the rush? 
You're right. It, not now. Maybe again in that quote unquote long run of three to six months from now, maybe you'll 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 see an uptick in it. I'll be curious about like substitute teachers in our building. The last couple of years, there's been a major sub shortage. But now that the pandemic's over, theoretically, if there's a recession, I'll be curious how many people are maybe trying to pick up kind of substitute teaching work as it's something that you can kind of do when you want, if that makes sense. Yeah, we'll see. I heard somebody that said Ann Arbor's paying $200 a day. That's that's a lot of money. Maybe they're getting them. I, I don't think we're going to get a lot at 115 or whatever we get because most college graduates can go do, so, some, do something else for that money. However, I don't think uh, substitute teaching has never been easier, at least the high school where I teach at. We all have uh, pages where our students know where everything is. The sub plans are simply posted there. Kids are streaming things on their one-to-one laptops. All the sub students really take attendance and uh, do bathroom passes. It's not like back in the day. You don't even have to figure out the video machine anymore. Do you think society would have benefited better if none of these companies had ever been started and instead venture capital had just given their money to schools just to subsidize uh, substitute teachers? Didn't Mark Zuckerberg try that in Newark? Didn't turn out well. No, I think he was buying like projectors and, uh, you know, meta, meta 3D reality masks and stuff like that. <laughs> Nobody wants to pay for humans to do any work in schools, which is a human service field. They all just want to buy desks and laptops. No, except for that superintendent in Washington, D.C. Wasn't she ready to, if you quit the union, she double your pay and uh, that she was ready to do that. But nobody else is. I, I just thought this was an interesting sort of article. I hadn't really thought about it. Again, I don't use a ton of these products. Do you? I have, but now the prices are high. Like if I'm in New York City or Chicago and need to get from here to there, we already walked one way. Like, sure. Yeah, I'll take an Uber. I think I did that about a year ago was the last time I took an Uber. I did DoorDash a couple times. Once this year, we were far away at a track meet. We sent DoorDash to our son that was home alone. That's it. Is the price high enough for me to drive three miles? It's got to be a pretty high, pretty low price for me to make me want to stay home. I can drive three miles pretty quickly. You're right. I guess I would just say, though, that if you're somewhere downtown Chicago and you need to go somewhere that's a few blocks away, you don't want to walk. What's the price point that makes you say, I just am not going to take this Uber? A part of me wonders if, is it so ingrained that, it's a couple of dollars. Maybe you you look at it as, oh, that's interesting, but you don't. It doesn't change your your habits. I mean, for instance, you know, gas is at four and five dollars a gallon. Now, I do believe long term people are trying to make adjustments in their behavior, but I'm also amazed at how when prices stay around long enough, people just kind of grumbly accept them a little bit, and they still tend to maybe buy some of these products. Is it possible people just say, yeah, I guess that's the DoorDash. I'm still buying it. Well, the transportation one's different because you can look at now there's also scooters in big cities and uh, that you rent by the minute. And there are e-bikes and there's mass transit that's no longer terrifying due to a pandemic. I mean, as far as DoorDash is concerned, yeah, there's a lot of alternatives, but maybe it's worth it to you. I don't know. Some people will spend lots of money for things just because they're a little more convenient. It's not me, but a lot of people do that. I mean. There are a lot of people with more money than brains, Zach. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. Or maybe they just, uh, you know, habits are hard to break. That's for sure. I guess what I would predict is 
I got to assume all these delivery companies are going to have to consolidate into, into like one, because it just seems like there's no way they can all keep going, especially if they don't have money behind them that can keep kind of loaning it out. So it seems like there's a place for maybe one of these things, uh, maybe two. And then I don't know, Uber and Lyft seem like the, the two alternatives to just the classic taxi cab. And in some ways, Remember when Uber was kind of the hero and that they were kind of breaking up the kind of quote unquote monopoly that maybe taxis had in uh, in cities and stuff like that? Just kind of interesting to see people grumbling about them now. Oh, yeah. Well, but people love to complain about anything until they adjust. And maybe they will adjust just like we have to gas prices. I paid 487 today. I was happy with that. I mean, maybe people adjust to DoorDash prices or they'll just make other choices. Yeah, no, that's that's very possible and stuff like that. We'll have to uh, we'll have to see. You're you have an older son there. Maybe in a couple of years he'll come home from college and grumble about uh, how his late night food uh, was too expensive to get and stuff like that. Yeah, I think he'll probably go to cereal and bars. He'll eat bars and cereal for days. <laughs> well, instead of a price going up, this next story is about Arizona iced tea. And how its price has remained the same, 99 cents for a can since 1992. Here's the best paragraph I've read. Gas is nearly six bucks a gallon. Groceries are 8% higher than last year. Dollar stores, now dollar and a quarter stores. But a giant 23-ounce can of Arizona iced tea still costs 99 cents. The same price it has been since it hit the market 30 years ago. Today, that's cheaper than most bottled water. 20-ounce sodas, iced teas, and canned coffees on the market. If you could fill your car up with cans of Arizona green tea with ginseng and honey, it would be cheaper than LA gas by nearly 40 cents a gallon. And Don, this article just kind of goes on to talk about an interview it has with the founder of Arizona iced tea, and he is adamant that he wants to keep it at 99 cents. What'd you think about this article? Well, it was super interesting. Um, Arizona iced tea, he put 99 cents on the can so it couldn't be sold up by merchants who would raise the price. So that's why he put it on. He doesn't want to change it. Some of the other products in his lineup has changed a little bit, but not the Arizona iced tea. That's their flagship and they're going to keep it there. And I think the part of the reason is it's a family owned business. It's a dad running it with his couple sons. It's a multi-billion dollar business, but it's not sold out to big corporate. I think big corporate would do some research and say, Based on the elasticity, we're going to raise the price and make more revenue and thus more profit. But because it's a private citizen, they can do whatever they want. They're not beholden to Wall Street, much the way the Chick-fil-A is not open on Sundays. No public corporation would pay all the seven days worth of uh, capital expenses, but only be open six. But they can do it because they're a private company. So Godspeed to them. It is interesting that this was about a private company that still can just make decisions that they think are best. And as you're saying, they're not beholden to shareholders, which of course would be demanding some sort of a profit or an increase in the price in order to offset the costs. At the same time, this guy and his two sons that sort of run the company seem like they've done really well for themselves. The company's worth $4 billion. He himself, along with his sons, I think are one of the thousand richest people in the world, which I thought was kind of crazy. I don't know if I've ever actually had an Arizona iced tea. Have you? Oh, yeah, I've had Arizona iced tea. That was big. Uh, when they first came out a long time ago, I had a few. Now they sell them all over the place. Grocery stores, there's a giant jug I've seen with kids have. It's, it's very, very, it's very pervasive. 
but also the colors look good. They told the story book tying the colors, the uh, merchandising materials, and it's just, it's 99 cents. Why not? People grab it and it just becomes a way of life. Hey, maybe it's the one hedge against inflation that people can take. They're probably going to have a great year and move a ton of product. You know, that was one of the things the guy just said is, yes, the easy thing to do would be to increase price, but that would break the trust that we've sort of built with our customers. And I thought it was interesting because he just said, like, I'm a blue collar guy. That's how I got my start in this world. A lot of people maybe budget their lunch or their day around, you know, having a, an Arizona iced tea, which I did learn, I think, if I'm reading this correctly, 17 grams of sugar per eight ounces. And uh, therefore, people are looking forward to having that drink and they appreciate that 99 cents on the can. And therefore, why take a chance that maybe you're going to make another customer angry and maybe they go away? I thought there was something kind of admirable about that. By the way, it's not eight ounce can. So it's really more like 30, 40. Ounces well, no, of but sugar. 17 grams per eight ounces is, I'm sorry, what I was trying to say. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a lot <laughs> more sugar than that. But um, yeah, I think it is. It is. Uh, well, they're a little bit trapped and it's a little bit good of them. The article also talked about how Coke was a nickel from 1886 to 1959, primarily because they put signs on all the Coke machines that said five cents and they didn't have to go. They'd have to go back and change all the machines. So and all the marketing materials, which is a little bit the same way that Arizona iced tea is. Maybe they'll change someday or maybe they won't. I'll take the loss leader. If people buy that at the convenience store, then they'll go to Kroger and buy the big jug or the six pack or the eight pack, which is probably more profitable. So, hey, keep it up. And as long as they stay private, they can do that. What do you think? One of the kids are like, come on, dad, let's sell to big corporate. Pepsi Cola give us eight billion and we can cash out and just live on a yacht. and We don't have to mess around with actually doing work. Don't you think one of them wants to do that? It would be interesting, although they all have big titles in the company. So maybe they like it. I don't know. Maybe they've turned it over to managers all day long and they just have to meet a couple times a week. But you're right. I'm sure they've probably thought about it. I'm sure they've had offers. Their, their major competitors, uh, Snapple, which was 99 cents in 1992, is now $1.79. Gold Peak, $1.99. And uh, Pure Leaf, $2.09. So they are way below their competitors uh, currently. Do you drink iced tea? I just am not an iced tea guy. I will drink unsweetened iced tea. I drink a lot of tea, but not iced tea. Um, I will drink iced tea if, if offered and it's not sweet. I'm not a big sweet guy. You mentioned the Coke thing. And what I thought was interesting was Coke sort of accidentally, you know, kind of got themselves into a trap with that five cent because of all the signs and the machines. But they said it also kind of set the model for going for large quantities and and therefore making it up that way and, and trying to get your product out there to as many people as possible. And maybe Arizona is doing that. I also kind of thought about you use the term loss leader. My question for them is, do they really have a loss leader? You know, you think maybe Costco with their $1.50 hot dog, or of course the rotisserie chicken you see at the, the supermarket, that's a loss leader, but you're hoping somebody comes in and buys other things. If only you sell beverages, can you afford to take a loss like that? Well, if it brings you brand loyalty and people buy frozen Cokes and uh, Coke paraphernalia or whatnot, and they go to the movie theater and buy a giant, super expensive Coke, then yeah, I guess so. Maybe it does, but uh, you have to definitely look big picture. Also, I don't think these beverages are that expensive to make and bottle and ship and that they're still probably turning a profit, albeit a slim one.
Yeah, he said it was in the pennies by this point in terms of the price of aluminum has doubled in the last 18 months. They said that fructose corn syrup is up nearly three times since like 2000s. They basically said if you adjust it for inflation, what you paid for an Arizona iced tea in 1992 would buy you two today, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, those prices are escalating, but I think there's going to roll back. Part of that's Ukraine, part of that's pandemic. I think some of that's going to roll back and they'll probably be okay. Yeah, I don't know. I I guess uh, staying loyal to your customer, though, I think that's interesting, riding it out, because I guess my thing would be is if they did want to increase their price by even a penny or two, do you think they take a big hit? I mean, do you think people would actually say, I don't want Arizona anymore? I'm so angry. I mean, the other competing, competing brands were much higher in price. Well, then you're forcing the customer to make a choice. And is their choice on flavor or habit or whatnot? You're probably going to lose a certain amount of the customers. You need to do some elasticity research and find out what actually will be the change. But I think the one penny change is not worth it. I don't think you change it unless you raise it 25 cents. Push that off for a few years and then go for it. Psychologically, too, I think there's just got to be something about 99 cents. And people see that and it's, it's, they immediately think it's a dollar or it's less. And that would be really hard to cross that barrier. It's one thing if you're at like a dollar 29 and you went to a dollar 39, I don't think anybody's really going to kill you for that. But I do think getting over that 99 cent hump is, is kind of hard. Well, what's really surprising is what a lot of businesses will do is as prices rise, they just shrink the containers. So they don't change the price, but your 24 ounce container becomes a 22 ounce or 21 and a half. And you just slowly shrink the product so people can't see that it's changing, but it is. And they haven't done that either. That's the part that really surprises me. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm always amazed that Coke is so brilliant in that my wife and I have started buying some like small cans of Coke Zero. And you're right, paying the same that I would have paid for the larger one. And yet they're actually giving me less and I'm giving them the same, if not more. And that really maybe is kind of brilliant. Although they said the one area that they can save with Arizona is on marketing and that they don't really have marketing. He said, we didn't really have any money to do it when we started. And therefore we just made a really big can to stand out. And then with, as you were mentioned earlier, the colors. And I just thought that's kind of interesting. Worked out. Yeah. Well, go Arizona. I I probably will not start drinking uh, more iced tea, but at the same time, I guess I'm kind of rooting for them to to keep going. I feel like they should deserve um, special mention or something like that by somebody important. For sure. Well, the final thing on prices is Venice, the city in Italy with all the canals and the gondola uh, drivers and the boats and stuff like that. They made a major announcement this week And NPR had the story. Here's the best paragraph I read. Venice officials on Friday unveiled new rules for day trippers, which go into effect on January 16th, 2023. Tourists who choose not to stay overnight in hotels or other lodgings will have to sign up online for the day they plan to come and pay a fee. These range from 3 to 10 euros, about $3.50 to $10.50 per person, depending on advanced booking and whether it's peak season or the city is very crowded. Transgressors risk fines as high as 3 300 euros, about $315, if stopped and unable to show proof they booked and paid with a QR code. Don, what'd you think about this idea about using prices to maybe control crowds in Venice? Well, tourism is increasing as plane airfares have fallen in the last 20 years. There's a lot of people in Venice. I was there in 1999 with my wife and it was 
a lot of people. We stayed there, so we wouldn't pay the fine, not that it existed then. But we thought the city was absolutely beautiful after all the tourists left. But in the evening, as the sun set, it was amazing. But it's also a city that's struggling a lot. I mean, if you walk around, you're like, this place doesn't make sense at all. I saw a picture before I went, but still it doesn't make sense. The buildings are basically built into the water, and the water is rising at times. Super high tides are flooding St. Mark's Square. It's got to cost a lot to keep that city up and remove all the trash and bring in all the food. Yeah, charge them more, and that'll uh, ration the amount of people. Hopefully, there'll be a little fewer, so it won't be quite as crowded. They said that on an average day in the summer, they'll have between 30 to 40,000 people show up just for a day trip. My wife and I went there maybe 20 years ago and we two stayed overnight. I had no idea that they were getting that kind of traffic on a daily basis. They said the population of Venice is maybe just about 50,000. Therefore, I kind of thought this was a really interesting experiment and I kind of wondered if maybe more major tourist destinations should consider this idea. Well, I know the park in Barcelona where there's the uh, near the Gaudi uh, Cathedral and it's really pretty. I know that charges uh, entry fees now and allows people to come in at certain times because otherwise it was just overrun with tourists. I imagine lots of landmarks do, but it, it makes sense when there's just so many people visiting and you want to have the, if there's too many crowds, it destroys the experience. I mean, you and I went, I went to the, I remember just waiting in line to go to the Uffizi, the uh, art museum in Florence. And there was only a few people out in. And I was like, wow, it's such a pain in the ass. Until so we got there and we looked around, the rooms were nearly empty. I remember my wife and I standing in a room and there were paintings on all our sides from Michelangelo, from Donatello, from uh, Leonardo da Vinci. And we were alone in the room with them. We're like, this is an incredible experience. Way better than being packed in at the Louvre in France, boxing out to get a glimpse at the Mona Lisa. And, and that's kind of the question I've got is, I think when you look at tourist brochures, National Geographic pictures, and you think you're going to go have this private moment in these, you know, well-photographed locations, anywhere from Paris to London to Rome, Cairo, and you're like, yes, this is going to be magical. And then you get there and it's it's wall to wall people in a lot of these places, especially during the heavy travel seasons. But a lot of these locations are just so internationally known that there almost isn't a non-travel season, if that makes sense. And I will say that it does kind of take away from the experience. I think everybody still in their mind wants to be romantic and feel like they're discovering something. But it's really hard when you're just kind of shoulder to shoulder and, and can't even kind of get up close to something, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, we talked about this with campsites. And it's true of everywhere. Like uh, we went to New York City on a Tuesday morning three or four years ago and thought we could see the bull at Wall Street. Well, we could, but it barely because it was covered with people all trying to take their picture there. It's it's crazy. You have to look for the things that are less sought out from tourists to find what's really good, which, again, takes me back to my point with national parks. Go half a mile from a parking lot. And you'll find something cool. So when you're searching for what's neat about Barcelona, Spain or wherever in uh, Venice, get a little bit off the beaten path. Don't go to St. Mark's Square. Look around and find something neat, some cool restaurant. And I think we need to be a little bit more uh, focused in our search rather than just going to the tourist spot. Although, yes, the tourist spot is very cool. But go there early in the morning at sunrise or sunset and check it out when it's worth something, not the middle of the day when it's covered with hordes of tourists. 
Well, this was one of the things I was wondering about is Disney often gets criticized for the fact that like every year they continue to raise the, the price of admission to go to the Magic Kingdom and people are saying, oh, you're pricing people out, you're pricing people out. And yet every year it seems like Disney announces record attendance again, even though they continue to raise prices. And therefore, clearly there's still a demand for their product and people might grumble about the increased prices, but they're still paying them. They're still going. It's crowded. I guess my question is, is this seems kind of like a Disney sort of model in a way of if you're only coming for the day, we're going to ask you to pay a nominal fee. Do you think more cities should be doing this or is this, you know, too, too free market, too capitalistic? It's uh, there's something wrong about maybe forbidding people to come into a certain area of a city. Well, you're right about Disney and the, what we've talked about in the past is with like camping episode is that it raises the price, makes it harder for low income people to go do these things. Disney. I don't go to Disney. I last went when I was four, but I'm told that people enjoy their trips there. We do the opposite thing of going to ski resorts, but it's the same idea. The prices rise every year and every year they have more attendance. Um, so long story short, yeah, you got to ration it in some way. There's a public good in this case we're talking about. You have to limit, the amount of people there. Otherwise, the public good is destroyed. It's the tragedy of the commons. When so many people are there, the value of the thing, the very thing you're trying to see falls. So you have to limit them. Raffles, signups, charges, they all work. I think cities prefer some sort of a fee because they get revenue. If they just raffled it off, then they get no revenue. Well, that does ration the good, but doesn't pay them anything. I think they'd vastly prefer to have a fee. I think what's interesting is like, you know, ski resorts, Disney, those are all private goods ultimately. And therefore you can just say, hey, they're allowed to charge. But when the public good is a city, I just think that's just a really different way to look at it. Now, obviously the cities seem to be kind of smart. They want to promote their restaurants and their hotels. And therefore, if you stay at these hotels, then you don't have to pay the fee. It looks like they're also going to be charging cruise ships that come in for the day uh, to drop off people. But I just think it's interesting that like you're literally telling somebody you can't come to this public space unless you want to pay. And I guess that's just sort of a different model. But I also wonder if it's a model that maybe we're going to start to see maybe just not only throughout Europe, but could you ever see some American cities or areas in American cities that are maybe hit by large numbers of tourists doing something like this? I can suspend my disbelief that Venice is a city. All right, suspend my belief that Venice is a city. It's almost more like a theme park. It's a historical theme park. It doesn't really exist as a city per se. It, it's a destination. So therefore you can limit it, I think. Now, in terms of other cities like Chicago, New York, San Diego, sure. But they already do that in the terms of uh, high hotel taxes. I mean, you've gone to these places and stayed in a hotel. In the city, the tax for people coming in to stay at the hotels is absurd. Well, they do that too collect money and ration out the good. Well, I don't think there's so much interest in rationing, but collecting money from tourists, they can just do that, but in a broader sense with turnstiles. It's not that different than hard charging a super high hotel tax or restaurant tax, right? No, you're right. And you're right. They're already kind of self-selecting. And maybe Venice is sort of a perfect place to do this because of the fact that it's surrounded by water on one side, there's tons of canals. And therefore, in a lot of ways, there's only so many like super popular places where everybody wants to congregate. 
And in a way, it's almost like people box themselves in, whereas maybe larger cities, you know, people can kind of flow out onto many different blocks and kind of get spread out fairly quickly. And therefore, maybe Venice is the perfect test case. But I, I guess I wonder, like, could you start to charge almost people that want to be within a thousand yards of the Eiffel Tower? Or, uh, and I guess you already have to like pay to go visit the pyramids and stuff like that to get like super close to it. But maybe you see that with uh, even more and more different monuments that are super popular. Yeah, it makes sense. But you're right about Venice. They're so isolated that there's just, there's one road in, there's one road out and there's train tracks going either way. Lots of trains coming in, man. But yes, that works out better than other places. But you can just limit the, like I said, restaurants and hotels. That makes sense to me. One thing I kind of wondered though is, are they actually going to be able to enforce this? <laughs> I mean, you know, are you going to have just secret police now walking around asking people to show them your QR code? Is there going to be a, somehow a way to hack in there and get a QR code? I do think that probably of these thirty to 40,000 people, most of them would probably say, fine, I'll pay 10 bucks. Cool. I, I just want to see Venice for a day and I want to move on with my trip, right? A lot of them are probably backpackers on a low budget and they want to just kind of check off that they've seen Venice. And I bet you a lot of people will probably be honest and pay, but there will be obviously some people trying to game the system. I guess, you know, how are you going to accurately try and let people know that you have a presence here and that you really do need to pay or you really could get fined? Well, there is absolutely no parking in Venice. So everybody is coming in on a train or a bus, usually a train, maybe even a boat. But either way, whatever you're doing to get there, you're buying a ticket. Just put a surcharge on the ticket. How hard is that? No, that's a good point, especially, or I guess like in the old days, it was uh, if you went to the mall, you had to have them validate your parking or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, there you, you went go. to a store. Although I can only imagine the kind of fraud that would uh, start to happen if just somebody started stamping things or something like that. I think they'll figure it out. But yeah, you're right about like Chicago or Boston or New York. There's a million different ways in and out of those cities. It's going to be a lot harder. But they may not, they're not trying to deter citizens, uh, visitors. They want more. Venice is the only one that's trying to deter people. That's true. That is very true. And maybe in some ways they're just like, look, our... Our lodging is pretty much booked up every night. Our restaurants are pretty full. If anything, now we're dealing with a lot of pollution and we're dealing with, we're at the point where the experience for everybody who is here in a way that we want them to be here is starting to get ruined and people are grumbling. And maybe really that's what they're trying to figure out. Yeah, I'm sure Genoa, Italy will put up some sort of a sign like, hey, Venice is crowded, come here. Our friend is there now. That's true. Our friend Kevin Kopech uh, went and saw Christopher Columbus's uh, house that he was born in this morning, I think. Yeah, he's, his family's probably still there answering the door. <laughs> well, Don, uh, we've got Venice charging. We got Arizona iced tea keeping the same price. And we've got the millennial subsidy ending with Uber and DoorDash and other companies. Which story did you find the most interesting? I think it's going to be the one that I don't know the outcome. The one that is most interesting is the millennial subsidy and what's going to happen with these companies and how are the public going to react? I mean, I think eventually Arizona iced tea is going to raise prices and currently they're not. And uh, Venice is going to figure their stuff out. But I, I'm very intrigued to see how this works out with this whole gig economy and subsidize. I, I had selected the same thing. I was very curious about how this plays out for those companies a part of me wonders if there's going to be some consolidation, but I guess another part of me wonders of 
are these companies kind of the new dot-com kind of bubble companies, right? Back in those days, you had pets.com and a lot of other companies that were, you know, talking about how many eyeballs they had looking at their websites every day. And then eventually a lot of them were just unprofitable and went away. And a part of me wonders, like, I don't know, has the last five or 10 years just been the era of door-to-door delivery and now it's just gone and, and you got to go pick stuff up on your own again? Yeah, that or the great hope is autonomous delivery. And that the machines are cheaper than the people and the drones. They're working like crazy on that, but I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. I want to go out in my in my yard and look up and catch the burrito in my mouth as it's dropped from the drone above. So then last question, what do you think happens first? Arizona iced tea raises its price or a drone delivers something to you? It doesn't even have to be a burrito. Oh, the drone. <laughs> Fair enough. I thought you were going to go Arizona on that. No, no, no. They're, they're, they're steadfast. They're still making a few pennies, but the uh, yeah, I, I think a drone's going to drive. They already do that in college campuses. They're just slow moving, rolling coolers, but it could be a airborne thing. It could, they're starting this in places. You know, you talked to me about cryptocurrency and drone landing spots. I, I, it's a policy. It's a possibility. I think we got drones coming soon. There are people working on it. That's for sure. And the burrito is the perfect thing to deliver on the drone. It's not that heavy. It's aerodynamic. Doesn't take up a lot of space. A pizza would be terrible to deliver by the drone. It'd be cold and be it's too not aerodynamic. Not that heavy. Uh, what is it? Is it Pancheros in Ann Arbor that has El Gordo and it's like a five pound burrito that gets dropped in your head? You're dead. <laughs> I don't think I'm dead, but I definitely won't be hungry. <laughs> You're right. You're probably, it's pretty soft, but that's a big burrito. I don't know if that's, that seems like it'd be a tough test for a drone. I've never had the two, two pound. I've had many times I've had Pancheros. I've never had the two pound burrito. Oh man. Maybe I think it was me in my twenties. I think I, I, I took a shot at it, but I just, uh, that, that falling from the air, I think would be uh, something to be scared about. I think they should just start with little candy bars or something like that. Well, that'll be fine too. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you this week. I look forward to talking with you next week. Okay. Bye-bye, Zach. Have a good time. Take care.